Hello and welcome to the Write for Your Life podcast, a show about creative writing, copywriting, reading and the ever-changing publishing industry. Bandwidth for August has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5 and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, that's C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. I'm Ian Broom and you are... I am Donna Sorensen and we are sounding really professional this week. We are always sounding professional, but this week we are sounding particularly professional. Well, well, we managed it for about one minute. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, that's right, listeners. We are uh, we're taking sponsors for the uh, for the first time on Five by Five this week. We've had sponsors on the Right for Your Life podcast before when I used to have uh, young Mike Hurley as my co-host. We did have sponsors for a time, and um, and then we didn't have them for quite a while and uh, and we now have them again and of course uh, sponsors are, are great because they help keep the lights on at five by five and they help they help uh, us uh, in Put many the ways in the bowl the gruel in the bowl indeed and <laughs> um, and uh, and you know I'm sure that anyone that listens to podcasts on a regular basis are familiar with the notion of sponsors so we have a couple and we have a couple of crackers by crikey we have a uh, Squarespace and uh, ScreenplayCoverage.com, but we'll be talking about those later on. First of all, we're back. We're back. We're hey. We have been, well, not quite in the middle of nowhere for a week, but pretty much the middle of nowhere. We had Wi-Fi, so, you know, we could do odd bits and bobs online, couldn't we? But um, we were on an island off the coast of Denmark near Germany um, in a little cottage with a nice garden in the sunshine for eight days with three babies and nine other people, nine other adult humans. In that um, melee, Ian, did you get much writing done? I got very little writing done in that particular melee. I, I, I am slightly concerned about the, the, uh, the extra person that you added there that I don't remember seeing whilst I was on holiday. What are you talking about? There were only um, there were there eight were adults. You said nine. <laughs> you said nine adults. Was is there what some? Basil, my imaginary um, friend, my masseur. We've been through this as well. You always. This happens so often. You use. You, you try and think of like a, a person's <laughs> name to use as an example. You always go for Barry or Baza, and I have to remind <laughs> you that I have to remind you that the funny name that you just thought of is my father's name. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was going to say Barry, and then I thought, no, don't say Barry because that's Ian's dad. Say Bazza because that's a different name. Well, everyone knows that there are very few names in the world. And uh... <laughs> right, anyway, so um, Bazza, he is Bazza. I love that name; it's great. He's my imaginary master. He was with me on holiday. No, you're right. There was only eight eight adults and three babies. Still, it's a lot of people to have in a very small cottage. Um, and I could tell the listeners that I did. Um, try to give you a bit of writing space. I, I saw you around with your, your iPad mini propped up um, here and there, trying to, to look kind of um, concentrated on what you were doing. But I just wondered whether you actually got anything down. I did get some stuff done. I think it was... Um, uh, I think when you have a holiday and it's... Or a vacation, so I think of the same thing. Um, when you when you do have a break from work, so let's you know this was a break from the nine to five job, as we've discussed many times. Our fiction and our poetry is is uh, is kind of our second jobs almost. Um, 
But a break from the kind of the day job, um, I always think, well, I know I'm going to do, going to get lots of fiction written. And um, and usually I I do kind of all right. I do often sort of write when I'm when I'm not working on kind of the, the, the day job. Um, but and I thought I would do this this week, although I'm much more realistic now that I have, you know, two twin toddlers. But it was um, uh, within the first couple of days, I did realize that it wasn't going to be a holiday where I got a lot of work done. And I did think to myself, I don't think we discussed this, but I did think to myself, I think that's probably okay. I, I realised how hard I'd been working on everything over the last three or four months since um, since uh, going freelance with my copywriting, working in the evenings, working during the day, and within the first couple of days, the first day I kind of crashed and I just, I, I was really quite uptight and I was sort of chasing the children around the garden, telling them what not to do and getting annoyed with them and instead of just sort of en- enjoying the moment, really. It took me a couple of days to get into the holiday. And then I realised that I wasn't going to get an awful lot of writing done, but I did snatch a couple of hours on a couple of days. And instead of getting um, getting carried away with, oh, now I need to write, I just used that time to try and plan what I would do when I got back. And mm. since we got back, which was on Sunday, so not that long ago, it's Thursday now, three, four days, um, I've I've written every day. And um, and so I'm looking at that time away as a positive thing. That forced break um, allowed me to kind of switch off mentally and kind of um, uh, make myself stop because it's so hard to do that when you when you first of all when you're working all the time, but also when you when you're trying to fit something in, like write a novel or or or, or get your poetry done. You always think mm-hmm. we talked about this before, but you you do always think. I need to do that now. If I've got some spare time, I need. I really need to do that now. And having a, a really a forced break with all those people around and this beautiful sunshine on an island, it does kind of make you think. Maybe I won't do that now, or maybe I won't. Maybe I won't chastise myself if I don't do this now. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good realization. Um, and I found actually, I really needed to sharpen my saw, as it were, um, in the same way. And I, I basically went offline nearly a hundred percent. I think I, I tweeted twice which so means I didn't go completely offline. But um, but what was interesting to me was that I, um, rather than writing, I, I find that reading is my way back into the writing world. And just to be able to take a couple of mornings where I, I caught up a little bit on my reading of, of just, just fiction, you know, not not reading news stories or articles or anything, just, just a book was enough of a change from my everyday routine because I do read I, I you know I still try to find time to read and I do it just before I go to bed when I'm lying dribbling all over the pages from tiredness so this this was nice just to have a morning where I sat and I read I think it was only like 20 minutes half an hour um but to switch my brain off and I tend to find that I write I don't write when I am somewhere but I write when I get back like you just said I haven't done that this time because um, I'm home alone uh, this week, so it's been, um, well, it's amazing how I can only think of rude uh, expressions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Do you know what I'm going to say? Tennis balls to the wall. That is an expression, right? You could have just said it. It's been jolly hard work and very busy. It's been, yes, very hard work and very busy. And um, and I'm not sure whether I did manage to sharpen my saw, if I'm honest. Because I don't think doing a little bit of reading is is enough. So I'm glad you did. (laughs) I I did a little bit of reading, nothing else. Um, We shall see whether I mentally have sharpened my saw over the next few weeks. Well, do report back. 
I will. I will, thanks. Um, yes, and what's been happening so in the world? Well, there's been one significant uh, brouhaha um, yeah. on, on the internet this week. Um, and uh, it's, it's surrounding our, our old friends, Amazon. Um, yes. Who, uh, is that the right way to say it? Amazon. Or would you, would you say Amazon? Amazon. I don't think I've ever said Amazon. But I wouldn't put it past you to say it, seeing as you keep saying tong, as in the, the floppy thing in your mouth. Um, well, that's just how you say tong, where I come from. Do you know why I say tong? No. Because it's got an O in it. C- can't apply that rule just there, randomly. It is, English doesn't work by rules. There are no rules. <laughs> English doesn't work by Otherwise rules. Otherwise you would say tongue That's a good point. And thruff for uh, through and various other yes. things. Anyway, yes. Amazon. Amazon <laughs> have sent... <gasps> My God, why don't they call themselves that? <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> We've just remarketed it after this whole fiasco. They just need to just come out calling themselves Amazon. Well, I'm going to email their chief executive about it because that's what they've asked... <laughs> Like that, that's what they've asked um, their KDP authors to do. So the, uh, the authors who are on the uh, Kindle Direct Publishing platform, I hope I've said that correctly, um, it, uh, so self, people who generally self-publish through, through Amazon, um, were all sent an email this week, at the start of the week, and the, the email was interesting. I think a lot of people will have read this. It was kind of it was kind of astonishing, and um, and they repeated the email on a website called readersunited.com, which is um, uh, every, the only thing on that website is the the, the text from the email, and um, I won't go into I won't kind of explain the whole thing, but it it was basically about the Amazon Hachette um, uh, debacle, the arguments, the ongoing discussions that they're having, where Amazon are have actively kind of taken off um, Hachette's books, so Hachette's author's books, um, from the Amazon uh, store because they're having a dispute about pricing and and that kind of thing. And Amazon's email, which is being sent again, I repeat, to their KDP authors, to their to the self-publishers um, who who use Amazon, um, kind of painting themselves as the kind of moral harbingers of literature and arguing that um, that their pursuit uh, in getting prices down is comparable to the um, introduction of paperbacks many years ago where people at first kind of said this is going to ruin literature but of course it's gone on to help more and more people read and and that kind of thing. It was making that comparison. It also re- referred to, to uh, wrongly, it turned out, to Orwell. And uh, um, it referred to, uh, some people were bothered by this, I wasn't at all, but the fact that they said famous author George Orwell, the kind of idea that um, an email to authors that, that they might need to explain who George Orwell was. So that was, you know, I, I don't really think that's, uh, I think that's people being a bit picky, but I think... I was being a bit picky, especially seeing as this, if, if if we're honest about it, this is not an email to KDP authors. I mean, this is a, a publicity statement it, to the world. Yeah, that's a, fanta- that's a really good point. It is, it is basically a, a PR statement. But that's an interesting point because part of the 
conversation around this um, that I've seen on Twitter on a couple of blog posts has been um, along the lines of why are you involving us from from those self-publishing authors on the KD, uh, KDP authors? The kind of, you know, this is not our battle. And uh, the author, Chuck uh, Wendig, who is uh, traditionally published but also has self-published his own work, um, who has a fantastic blog called TerribleMinds.com. I will put a link in the show notes to his post on it. Um, uh, and... And he's got a great take. He, he effectively says the same kind of thing: is, is you know, this is not our, this is not our argument. This is your argument, and uh, and you should have it. Don't kind of get us involved. The other, there is another kind of uh, way of looking at it. And something that I don't fully understand is why so many um, self-publishing authors um, support Amazon on in, in this stance. Because what Amazon are effectively asking them to do is to help them campaign for or, or kind of get them on their side to bring the prices down of traditionally published books, which would then make those books more competitive price-wise with those self-published books. And and theoretically, I suppose, um, readers might be less likely than they currently are to buy the cheaper books that are published um, by in- independent authors. Yeah, I mean, so at the moment that... There is no price concern about KDP authors and their ebooks. Nobody's saying they're too expensive. So why, how can they be drawn into this? I think Chuck Wendig, what he said was very good about the fact that Amazon, part of the email that they suggested be sent to Hachette's, um, was it the CEO? Yeah, yeah. Um it, They suggested lines that people put in it. For example, stop using your authors as leverage. Yeah, and then it's it's actually that that's exactly the the entire point of of this little PR stunt or email to their own. One of my um, my favourite comments on it was by, um, and it's, I'm sure a lot of listeners who listen to the other podcasts on Five by Five will know will know John Gruber and Daring Fireball. But he just in one line, it was fantastic because um, yes. So the other thing that they asked um, that was included in this email from Amazon to its self-publishing authors was we know that you have already been found guilty of colluding with other publishers to fix prices of course there was the trial in the US and um, and they lost and that trial was in conjunction with, with, with Apple so Apple also lost the trial in conjunction with the publishers I'm sure you all know this um, and uh, let me just find it yeah so um, actually it wasn't relating to this but it's very, very similar Um uh, so yeah, so they were actively, you know, asking authors to email the CEO of Hachette and kind of say, "Hey, we know that you colluded with other publishers." Of course, the irony of that whole case, which I'm not an expert on at all, so I'm, you know, I'm not pretending that I am, um, but it always seemed kind of strange to a lot of people that Apple and the publishers were kind of hauled in front of the uh, U.S. Department of Justice um, for kind of trying to. Uh, affect a market and affect prices and all that kind of thing when Amazon is kind of the king of doing that who have completely got a monopoly on this on on the uh, publishing on the sorry on the uh, digital book sales certainly but also just you know sales in general you know they are the absolute kings and they seem to you know they they weren't included in this uh, this this kind of uh, Department of Justice investigation and on Daring Fireball John Gruber links to 
um, a story that Amazon takes on Disney in DVD pricing fight. So obviously very similar. And um, he quotes Bloomberg and it's, yeah, just points out how similar it is. And then Gruber's comment at the end is, um, sounds like it's time for the US Department of Justice to investigate Apple again. <laughs> yeah, the idea that Amazon, yeah, obviously Amazon sort of tries to fix pricing and another company gets yeah. uh, hauled in front of the Department of Justice. So, you know, the reason I think that they chose the KDP authors was fairly cynical. I don't personally have a massive beef with Amazon more than the average Joe. Um, we've discussed this before. But the reason I think that they sent the message to those key KDP authors, one, because you're right, it would instantly become a, um, a PR thing, but also because they are an extremely um, supportive group of Amazon. Those Amazon has transformed self-publishing, and all of those authors, I imagine, certainly the vast majority, are naturally supportive of Amazon because they provided the platform and the tools and the reading devices that have allowed them to self-publish in a in a kind of legitimate kind of money-making kind of way. So, yeah, turn to them. Um- would it not be safe to assume also that if the KDP published authors are probably more um, tech savvy and more likely to be engaged online as a community and to be able to get this message out if they, in the first place, are self-publishing? Exactly. They are, they are kind of... It's uh, self people who self-publish and do it successfully usually build an audience and have a a really good author platform and therefore they have a, um, a people who they can instantly share it with and it will go out to lots of people and um and and yeah and it will it will spread i guess more quick. i mean we don't know that this is the case but that seems like a fairly sensible way of um uh, of thinking yeah i i did laugh out loud at uh, chuck wendig's blog post on it when he said that amazon had suggested that you email we have noted your illegal collusion and then he just says okay robocop how many seconds do we have to comply <laughs> just so bizarre doesn't it exactly chuck, chuck wendig's blog is great i mean it's he's um, fantastic uh, fantastic blogger loads of good advice highly recommended i mean i'm not sure that we're any clearer about the whole situation after this whole um well, the email and, and the response to it. But it's, it is amazing that it's so drawn out and that it's become so public. I mean, it's just, I, it doesn't seem like there's going to be any way to, to resolve it. Well, I mean, the, the, well, there has been a, a counter-response from the, um, the, the CEO of uh, Hachette. I can't remember his name, unfortunately, and I don't have it immediately to hand. Perhaps not that important this time. And he responded, and of course he's been responding to Michael all these emails. Peach. Oh, that's right. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, well, it'll do. He's in charge of uh, Hey Shot. <laughs> couldn't think of a, I couldn't think of a, an exciting way of saying it. Then. Um, Hacker Hetter. Indeed, but so there are, of course, a lot of self-published authors who do support Amazon on this. So my, not my theory, but the theory I've kind of parroted here, parroted, parroted, parroted earlier about uh, you know the, that that would effectively bring prices down of traditionally published books to a similar level um, and therefore become more competitive with self-published books despite that kind of way of thinking a lot of self-published authors do support amazon on this and i probably wonders whether it's just blind faith because like i say you know a lot of them are naturally uh, in favor of amazon in general because of what it's what they've done to the industry and how they've helped self-publishing in general um 
But there is another another argument, and I have a link here in the digital book world. Again, I'll put this in the show notes. Where might I find those show notes, Donna? You'll find them at fiveby5.tv slash wfyl slash 123. Absolutely. And uh, this is Barry Eisler, who's a very um, uh, outspoken and also very popular blogger and author, self-published. Can we call him Bazza? We can call him Bazza. He will never listen to this. and uh, and so he's quoted in this Digital Book World article. I'll put both links in the show notes. And he says, uh, It's certainly possible that high legacy prices create an opportunity for indie authors to sell their books for less. But there is another possibility that more readers will spend more money on all books overall if more individual books cost less. Exactly. So, I mean, so- that, that's basically what Amazon was trying to say in their George Orwell thing, wasn't it? And when they were, they they took out some of their pricing as an example about the fact that actually, in general, it's better. Well, it's better for it's better for uh, for readers, and it's kind of fine for self-published authors. Um, mm. in, in, I, I guess, in a way, if if all the prices come down though, and 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 that's Amazon's argument. What are we saying here that the traditionally published author? doesn't count it doesn't really matter because if my book was sold for 2.99 i would get considerably less money than i even get now which is very little money um and you know there are other reasons for that i've only got one book out and and uh, you know it's literary fiction which which is you know often difficult to sell compared to some other genres there are lots of reasons but ultimately if we're going to just say well all books should cost less and roughly the same then then you know is the, the the traditional route, which I think still has lots of value in it for for lots of people. Um, what what are we saying that that kind of doesn't matter? That we should just be that we should just be happy that those authors. Yeah, I just I just feel like there's a whole group of authors here who are kind of being directly affected and not really not really considered in in all of this. And and I you know I, I suspect that Hachette to, to to blame in their case for this in in, in many ways too. But it's, it, but it's nobody's a- prepared because it's such, you know, it's not that it's the the publishing industry is set in its ways and all that. I know that there there are, you know, mouths to feed and wages to be paid. But the whole idea that if if every book suddenly became bargain basement that nobody would earn any money as opposed to if every book became bargain basement, then way more books would be sold in general. I guess that's that's something we'll never find out because they they're just they're not going to have they're not going to let them become bargain, but you know, like in, in a massive bin, chuck them in there for a really really cheap amount of money. Well, they, they may have to do that. I mean, I suspect that Amazon will get its way eventually with most things. Certainly in the next few years, who knows? So is that the future? Who knows what the future holds? Indeed, indeed. Well, there you go. I think this is an opportune time to uh, introduce our first sponsor. Are you excited? I really am. It sounds great. Tell me more. Well, I will. The first sponsor this week is uh, Squarespace. Um, and I'm really pleased that we have uh, Squarespace as a sponsor because I, I use Squarespace. I'm currently setting up a Squarespace website now. So I'm going to read you the bits and then I'm going to talk about my own experience uh, slightly after that. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code WRITE, which is W-R-I-T-E, obviously. 
Uh, Squarespace makes it simple and easy to create a beautiful design for your custom website using a drag and drop interface. They also make it easy to get help with 24-7 support through live chat and email. And located in New York City, Dublin and Portland, you can reach Squarespace support anytime you need it, no matter where you are in the world. Plans start at just $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Their templates include responsive design and every site comes with an online store. Get started with a free trial, no credit card required and start building your website today. When you sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code that I just mentioned, that's right, and that will give you a 10% off and, and it will show your support for Right For Your Life and 5x5, of course. So uh, thanks for Squarespace for sponsoring the Right For Your Life podcast. Again, they did do before a few months ago or a few couple of years ago, actually, like I said, and uh, for supporting 5x5, which they do weekly on various various shows. So I, I've, I've, I use Squarespace. It's... Uh, it's what I'm using to set up my freelance site. Oh, fantastic. It's um, the bit that I think is the most handy bit is the fact that it's kind of a, a drag and drop kind of system. So it's what I it's pretty much what I recommend now to any writer who says they want to start their own, um, you know, author platform, the old key phrase, author platform. I pretty much always recommend Squarespace now because it's uh, it's uh, it's easy. There's none of that faffing around with code. I've, I spent quite a long time trying to, teach people teach kind of tell people that they should learn how to code and these are people who had no interest in learning in learning how to code yeah. so um, i don't do that anymore mm. uh, quite so yeah our main topic for today is uh is is a tricky topic um but it's one that i've seen i've seen blogged about by a couple of people actually um, uh, in the last uh, week or so, I think I think there was one blog post about it that I saw whilst we were away, and there is a blog post by Matt Gemmel, who is um, uh, a, a developer, a software developer turned writer. Although he's kind of always been a writer, he's kept a, a, a very popular blog for years, but he's turned his hand to fiction. And um, I haven't read it yet, but he's written a, a 5,000 word plus blog post on the process that he's using or the techniques that he, he's using to go through his second draft. So he's written a first draft and he's just going into his second draft and he's written this huge article, which I didn't have time to read before we recorded the show, but I will go back and look at it because this idea of um, revisions and what you do once you have a completed piece of work is... Um, is is a really important bit because that's where the real writing work gets done i've always found i how how does this work with 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 poetry donna because i i have have attempted poetry i've written many poems none of them i'm particularly proud of um oh <laughs> worse, you know one of them had a good name one, one of them had a good title would you like to know the title go on um, it was about um, the fact that I grew up in the Midlands. Do you know, I've got deja vu. I think I've talked about this before. Um, it was about growing up in the Midlands, the middle of uh, the UK, uh, middle of England. So not northern, really, or not southern, really, but wanting to be northern. Definitely, if I was given the option, I'd like prefer to be from the north. And I called the poem Between a Frock and a Hard Place. It's pretty Okay. It's pretty deep, no, yeah, I, I, I don't think you've told me that before. Why the frock? Well, the the idea is that the the people from this all people from the south are southern softies, hence the frock. I mean, it's now I say it now, it sounds incredibly 
So you're likening them to um, female people. This has got an awful lot of problems. I can see this now. <laughs> I was, I was, I was, I was 16 when I wrote it, and I came up with the title, and I tried to write a poem around it. Oh, that's a great insight into your early mind. Offensive. Absolutely um, offensive. <laughs> great. Anyway, I don't, um, I don't write poetry anymore. But whenever I try to, I find myself revising it about just over and over again like I just focus on you know that's not the right word and I can never quite get it right but this process of constantly rewriting and rewriting because there is you know usually most poems very little text there seems to be more focus on getting the words right so I don't know what do you think before I go on about novels and that kind of thing <laughs> talk about tell us about how you approach revisions well, with poetry I really feel like it's it's quite an organic process and it depends on the poem and I have had poems where I've been revising it and revising it and revising it to death over like, you know, a year. And I go back to it. I think, oh, that, yeah. Now I've, I've given that a bit of time before I looked at it this time. Let me look at it with fresh eyes. I've opened it up and like, oh, that is rubbish. No wonder I haven't looked at it for a year. And doing that a few times. And then with a couple of those poems, I've actually thought, but I think the idea in it is good. It must just be the form of the poem. So actually in a couple of cases, I might have just completely changed the, the, the way I wrote it but in general I would say that I like to edit my poems quite quickly because as you say they are small pieces of writing and I you get get kind of absorbed in it I think that's partly why I love poetry so much is just because I uh, when I was back writing fiction a long time ago in children's fiction um I used to do things like I wrote a a story you know, we, a few weeks back, we were talking about the fact that one of the big errors that people who submit uh, manuscripts to editors make is that they don't pitch their children's books at the right age group. And um, I wrote a children's story. I've written quite a few, actually. Um, and I just was not really sure what age I was pitching it for. But what I thought was, I thought the best thing to do was just to sit down and bash that bloomin' story out in the shortest space of time. And... Um, and I did it. I wrote it from start to finish in bed with a laptop without moving. And I think it took me, I don't know how many hours, three hours, four hours or something like that. And I'd say I mean, the kind of age group was maybe eight to nine year olds. That's the kind of book it was. So it had like basic chapters. Um, and then, yeah, so I did it and I was like, whoa, I've got a whole story. And I just left it like I do with poems. And then I've never, ever, ever done anything more with it because <laughs> I just feel like I came out of that world and I just cannot get back into it and I look at it and I'm like that is so rubbish I don't even know how to start that I feel like I just would need to start again and you can't just do that you know so that actually I, I've learned now I probably would never do that ever again try to write it all in one go I, I think I'd probably write a chapter at a time or, so, or you know even if it's just a few pages at a time and just focus on getting them right um, before I moved on so there's my little little bit of experience in it. I do think you're right when you say it depends on, on what you're writing, actually. I mean, it can be, I can, uh, I can, I can be working on a, on, a, on a paragraph, a particularly important paragraph, or one that I just can't quite get right. It can be revised umpteen times. There are other parts of, uh, of, of my writing which, which would probably be written once proofread and will never change. I, I think I've said this before, that the, that the first page in... In, in my first novel was pretty much the same as it was when 
I first wrote it, and the rest of the book went through lots of revisions and changed, changed, and some chapters changed. You know, lots and lots of times. Some chapters started off two thousand words, and then were broken up into different parts and thrown into different areas of the novel, completely miles away from each other. Um, but like I say, yes, the, the first page that pretty much stayed the same. So I think it, d- it depends on what you're working on, and it depends on. On, on a lot on your your way of way of writing really and, and what you're comfortable with um, some people do follow a fairly strict kind of um, uh, uh, process really and I'm going to be interested to find out if that's what Matt Gemmell has done or is doing on his 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 uh, second draft um, one of the articles I wanted to talk about was uh, was on the creative pen podcast which is called uh, it's an article called Editing and the Writing Craft Tips from an Editor um, and it's a, a, a series of, of questions really um, that, that are answered by I'm just stumbling over my words because I want to check who this post was by okay it was a guest post by uh, Jen Blood who is um, uh, Joanna Penn's fiction editor and she made some really interesting points and one of one of her points was actually one of my three points. So I've come up with three points that I kind of thought were interesting. Some people have a real strict process, like they'll write uh, there's a very quick first draft, then there is a second draft, then they will be send it out to um, to uh, readers, like uh, some beta readers. Then there will be uh, another draft, and then it will go to if you have, let's say you have a publishing deal, it will go out to your uh, agent, and then you'll get it back, and then you'll you know, th- and that's what happens every time. Um, I'm not sure that I would necessarily work like that because I think that my experience so far in my relatively short career is that everything is different everything that I work on is different and I need feedback at different times I need to work on different parts of what I'm doing at different times and that kind of thing however one of the key points and this is one of the key points that uh, Jen Blood in this article also uh, said is is to keep moving forwards this is yeah I mean this is a one of my biggest problems in fact i would say this is probably my biggest problem as a writer is an uh, is a, a real difficulty sometimes to remember the importance of moving forwards uh, at all times as i said earlier i can get hung up on a p- specific paragraph for an awful long time days weeks even sometimes and rather than saying I'm going to come back to that later. Even if I'm going through a revision, I'm on my, you know, I'm going, I've already written this and I'm on a second draft. I still sometimes need to move on and just think this is getting me nowhere. I need to go and try and do a different part of this. So when you are revising your work, I do think there is a real temptation to think, well, okay, this is the only time I'm going to revise my work. This is my opportunity. I've written this. Now is my opportunity to edit it and to change it. And actually you will end up going through lots of cycles before you end up with the finished thing so if something is even in the revision stage that you're still not able to get it quite right for goodness sake don't get so hung up that you stop moving forwards and the whole process becomes a chore and and uh and you you know you stagnate that's my first kind of real real points and jen blood says i shall read her quote says your ultimate goal is always is always forward movement even if that forward movement can sometimes feel painfully slow. Every every revised draft, that's quite difficult to say, every revised <laughs> draft should feel a little bit better than the last until eventually you have a complete polished novel. Mm. 
Does it make sense? Do you agree with point one of three? Yes, absolutely. Point two of three um, <laughs> is is um, well, never throw any throw anything away. And that sounds really. <laughs> I know. Um, but we're not talking hoarding here. We're just talking writing. It's very specifically about writing. That would make an interesting writing environment, though, if it if, don't throw anything away. But I think that the the age of computing, which is actually quite old, I don't think we really should be, not that you did, but I don't think I should be using that phrase really anymore. But, you know, we all use computers. Um, most of us use computers to, to write our work. And you can write a sentence. And... It's so funny that you say that. <laughs> say what? But, I mean, it, you said, no, no, no. I mean, we're, you know, we don't need to say that kind of thing. But most of us, we use computers to write our work. I mean, it just immediately sounded like something from the 80s. Uh, so I, congratulations on sounding really, really old-fashioned. Well, thank you very much. I do feel slightly <laughs> in the 80s. I had a conversation um, uh, in my uh, day work recently about um, something written for primary school children and... The phrase, did you talk about digital natives you were talking about? No, that was my... No. But um, but they are digital natives, and that is the point. And, um, and you know, we refer to it as uh, 21st century communications. It's like, well, you know, the 21st century, there, there was no 20th century for these children. So, um, so it had to be revised. But it's funny, isn't it, the way that your mind plays tricks on you? It, it is. It is funny. And I've totally distracted you from point two of three. Indeed. Which is never throw anything away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course it was. Um, um, but well, what could you throw away anyway? I mean, it's. I don't think I ever throw away... Like, I, I don't think I ever move files to the recycle bin that I've worked on. No. Um, I just file them away. But, I mean, I guess we, we also are talking about scraps of paper where you've written ideas down or, you know... That kind of thing. I'm actually talking specifically about digital. This is the reason I mentioned computers because my example is going to be we can we you know we can write a sentence, and then we go actually no that that's that's not quite that's not quite what I meant. Or let's extend it further. We write a paragraph and we think it's important at the time and it might help us. Uh, be, you know, it might be part of a chapter, for example, um, and then actually, when we reread the chapter and revise it, that particular paragraph actually that's that wasn't really necessary. And uh, we could just sort of hit backspace, hit delete, and uh, and it's gone. Um, yeah. And Blimey, I mean, you're talking about saving sentences. I'm talking about saving sentences. I'm talking about saving oh. paragraphs. And the way that I do this mm. is I have a file which is called scraps. And I put unused paragraphs in there. And it doesn't matter how small they are. Like I say, it could be, could be sentences, um and uh it, it could be it could be quite long pieces actually it could be you know it could be four or five hundred words that i've decided to cut from the from the you know the main body of work but i've I want... just had a flash forward of a thousand years ian like sappho the poet her fragments you know have been published to in a thousand years time when your um scraps file is going to be published as a book is it going to be a bit like um jeff buckley's Posthumously, posthumously re- released album, which was one kind of half-finished CD, and the other CD was basically just his ramblings with a guitar in his bedroom. Yeah. Uh, do, do you know the Do you know the name of Jeff Buckley's second album? No, I don't. Fragments. 
shards. Similar, and it's one of my, my favourite album titles ever. I think it was what he'd planned to call it. It's called uh, Sketches for My Sweetheart the Drunk. <laughs> oh, I cool. love it. That's great. I think that's right. I'm not going to have to check that now because I've suddenly got a feeling I might be wrong. If it's not, I heard him speaking, recorded um, for the first time recently, just talking, and mm. he just sounded so young and so excited about life. I thought he was very a very, a very unusual uh, kind of guy, and just, mm-hmm. just so much talent. It was ludicrous. If people mm. don't know who Jeff Buckley is, he was a singer-songwriter in the. Uh, well, I guess uh, he died in 1997. Grace, his only album released while he was alive, came out in 1994. His dad, famously, was Tim Buckley, who was a very famous uh, kind of folk singer in the presumably 60s, 70s. And he also relatively famously didn't have a lot to do with Jeff. Uh, but Jeff inherited his father's ridiculous singing voice. And um, and he was a bit like Mariah Carey, Jeff Buckley. He could reach all those different pitches that normal human beings can't actually reach. <laughs> cats and, and things can. Yeah, Mariah yeah. Carey, cats, yeah. fish, <laughs> and Jeff Buckley. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. My goodness, we digress again. Sappho and Jeff Buckley all in one um, thought train. That's really interesting. What about point three of three? Point three or three. So yes, to finish point two, create a scraps file and put your any any unused work in there. It's extremely important. I'm going to do that now, and I've never done that before. I do save old versions of poems, and then when I update them, but but just at the word or 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 phrase or sentence level, I wouldn't keep those. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I like uh, it. And uh, and finally, point one, point three. It's point one on my piece of paper here. Point three. <laughs> in in uh, descending order, no, uh, I, reverse order. I, I seem to be completely losing myself um, in in the in the uh, process of recording this podcast. I do apologise. <laughs> point three is don't dismiss the importance of having time to think and process between revisions. Yes, absolutely. And and it's that thing you were saying about the fact that we always feel like we need to be doing something, like physically actually doing something instead of sitting and thinking. It's true. And, and you know, if we finish that first draft, it's very exciting. So you want to kind of think, right, now back back go again. Let's go back to the start and go through it again. And, um, and, and, and I think a little bit of space is really important. And it's not to say that you should give it, a, you know, don't give it a couple of years. But certainly... Uh, a period of time that is not extremely short maybe a week maybe a month but just give yourself some time away to reflect and to get a bit of breathing space maybe even work on something else in that time something else writing related before you come back to it because that that process you know a lot of writing a lot of the writing and editing process takes place when you're not actually writing and editing it's that it's when you're on the bus looking out of the window it's when you're i don't know on the train or just sat on the toilet, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. In the shower, that would have been a much cleaner, better example. Um, so that, Both good places to get stuff done. Indeed. That in-between time is very important. So they were my, they were my three points, which um, I, I think I find really useful, and um, I think you should consider them. And I think bef- before we go on to talk briefly about Robin Williams, who, of course, died this week. Um, we're not going to go into it in detail. In fact, we're going to talk about a very specific thing that happened to you or a specific email that's been doing the rounds. Um, mm. 
Before we do that, I want to uh, talk about our second sponsor, mm. which is uh, ScreenplayCoverage.com. And uh, screenplay coverage, ScreenplayCoverage.com, which I shall say correctly, is a, a really interesting service, and, um, and uh, I quite like the sound of it. It's not something that I was familiar with before, but it sounds pretty good if you're into your screenplays. And of course, I've been dabbling slightly in the screenplay world myself uh, uh, recently. Anyway, if you have a screenplay written, you've probably heard you need to get coverage on it. If you don't know what that is, coverage is what readers do at studios and production companies, basically a report card along with analysis of every screenplay that comes through. Agents and producers are always looking for positive coverage reports on a script before they check it out. So you need to go to screenplaycoverage.com and have their professional readers do a coverage report for you. Will it be positive? Well, that you don't know until you submit it, but even if the overall grade would be a pass, you're going to get a lot of comprehensive advice from pro-Hollywood readers on how to improve your screenplay. These guys have been reading scripts for agencies, studios and production companies for years, and they'll do it for you as a service for a really reasonable rate. They'll also write a synopsis for you, proofread your scripts, and they do performed audio readings of screenplays, where actors read through your script and act it out for you. Um, and it's all edited together for a great presentation. There are tons of testimonials on this site from writers who've been helped by their services. Check out screenplaycoverage.com and use the offer code Write for Your Life, that's all one word, for 15% off your first order, which is uh, a pretty good deal. The bit that I particularly love the sound of is uh, actors um, reading out and acting out your script for you. It sounds yeah. like an unbelievably useful thing to have as a as a, uh, a screenwriter. Um, and Absolutely. As a novelist, I don't know about you with your, po- well, I presume you must have with your poems. Like I'm always reading bits out to myself, and 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 you know sometimes I record it and listen to it back. It's really useful. But to have like, but hearing someone else do it is entirely different. Uh, a complete, completely different thing, and especially if it's yeah. a screenplay where you act different parts out. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds fantastic. So yeah, the uh, screenplaycoverage.com, offer code write for your life, all one word, and you'll get 15% off your first order. Super duper. Well, it's um, yeah quite fitting that we'll stay with Hollywood here when we're just going to finish off talking about yeah really tragic news this week about Robin Williams. I mean, it's amazing. Obviously, everybody's completely and utterly shocked about it. Did you see today, actually, that the, his wife has just... Um, disclosed that he was in early stages of uh, Parkinson's disease. Gosh, I did not know that. I hadn't read that, no. No, and that kind of was like, okay, well, that's a very important piece of information, which had not been around at the start of um, of the buzz online, as it would be called, um, in this this next thing that I'm going to share. Um, I, um, I stumbled upon something on Twitter. It was an email sent by, and it's complete name and shame, this um, here, um, we, this, they, they absolutely need naming and shaming. And the reason, <laughs> the reason we bring this up is, of course, that both of us are copywriters, and yes. um, and we write we write copy for a living. We both we write marketing copy sometimes, and sometimes when you're writing marketing copy, you kind of do kind of inside you kind of think, gosh, is this, you know, is this a bit much? It sometimes can be it sometimes can be a challenge to kind of make sure it's in it has integrity integrity and all that kind of thing. This. Mm. The people who wrote this email need naming and shaming. Go for it. Absolutely. Well, yeah, but I was obviously everybody shocked about this, what I'm going to say now. You would be mad not to be. But for me, 
because I do so much work with SEO on a daily basis, I had no, it's maybe I'm just naive. I had no idea about the levels that people went to to get their websites <laughs> to the top of Google. You know, and I'm somebody that works with SEO and we have a very big website. You know, in fact, we have loads of websites. Um, but basically, I stumbled upon an email from Christina Everett um, to her web editors. And Christina Everett is the, um, she works for Daily, the New York Daily News. Um, and she's the, I think she's the deputy managing editor of entertainment at uh, NY Daily News. Anyway, this email that she sent out was leaked and it basically was a thank you to her web editors. And it goes like this. Thank you to everyone who did a great story with keeping our stories SEO strong with the quotation marks, Robin Williams dead at 63 header for the first 24 hours. Starting tomorrow morning, we can scale back on the robot talk, meaning no death header, just as long as the stories continue to start with his full name and include buzzy search words like death, dead, suicide, etc. Um, yeah, so I shared this on, obviously, like, there's a lot of talk about this online, but I just had no idea how naive I was. There is a possibility that this is not like a um, something that all people working with copywriting online, you know, content deal with, but that it's because it is a newspaper and it's journalism. And that's just the way it has always been also with, you know, traditional print journalism. I don't know what you think, but I had no idea. No uh, idea. I mean, sadly, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't hugely surprised by it. I do, there is a whole um, industry and not, not everyone in the search engine optimization industry and definitely not all copywriters and writers of course but um yeah it it happens that kind of thing is going on all of the time and um and it's awful it's awful isn't it to think that that's what a human being um that that's their job um after someone has uh, someone who is also i mean this doesn't really matter it could be anyone who's died um someone who's so universally kind of uh, loved and, and has all these, you know, these um, wonderful obituaries and the idea that someone somewhere, and I'm sure there are many more people writing similar emails all over the place, um, that's kind of their job to write that kind of response to such awful, tragic news. I don't know. I just... I, I mean, I think also, though, like, even if that is this person's job i mean just the tone of it is is what shock is, is so shocking you know the fact that it's I, I don't think you have to even if you even if you wanted to write to your web editors and say you know it was amazing that we were there with this story you know that we were in in the fray you know and that people were finding our content i think there is another way to look at it or to say it even than just like you know buzzy search words and we can scale back on the death headers and robot talk and all that stuff. It is definitely the mentality behind it rather than the actual job, I think. But that's and what I don't think... Go on. No, no, you go. No, so I was just going to say, like, because, I mean, I'm, although I'm not writing that kind of story and I'm very glad about the fact that I I'm, I'm, don't work in journalism in that sense that I am under pressure to get, you know, news out um, and to get it seen really, really quickly... I'm extremely glad. I just don't think I could enter that world. I don't think I ever could as a writer. It's only it would be too Jay, awful for me. <laughs> it's only happened to me once where I've been asked to write something that I felt 
really uncomfortable with it was not on this kind of level kind of scale um in terms of kind of just unpleasantness but it was it was um about i don't know i probably can't really say but it was it was it was certainly made me feel uncomfortable the kind of the what i was effectively marketing and the the kind of the group of people that i was being asked to market it to the whole thing just just didn't make sense and um and you know kind of kind of of, it was a little bit stinky something wasn't quite right and (laughs) and i i was given the brief and of course this is a paying job so um i i uh, i kind of was asked to do it and i uh i decided to i thought about it and i thought i'm going to say something so i did and we had this conversation about whether it was the right thing to be the right kind of work for us to be doing for example, was my question, <laughs> and mm. um, and what was the response? Um, the response. Get back to your desk and write it. A, a little bit. <laughs> uh, it was. It was a little bit. Um, and um, anyway, uh, without without mentioning any names, I'm treading very carefully here. Um, <laughs> I turned out to be right, and there was all kinds of problems with that particular company um and it came out very very heavily in the british press that there was all sorts oh, of nonsense going on just say things like that and not tell us all oh, the intrigue the intrigue but that's as far as i shall go with that but um what's your favorite robin williams uh uh film or or, or well, memory to know, finish on a positive i would i was exactly going to say that i would love to just finish on a positive because obviously i mean he is he's just brightened everybody's lives hasn't he really let's be honest um i was always touched to find out when Christopher Reeve had his um, horrendous accident, you know, became a paraplegic after he had a horse riding accident. That was when I saw a completely different side of Robin Williams because, you know, before that, regardless of how amazingly funny and, and how down to earth he seemed, he was still a Hollywood person. But but seeing his genuine friendship with Christopher Reeve and the way that he was with him throughout the end of Christopher Reeve's life really I thought was just incredible and I saw an amazing picture today of the two of them as young men just laughing and joking I think they were roommates um Mm. in New York when they were acting yeah um and just a little anecdote about how when Christopher Reeve was having like a really serious back operation Robin Williams just burst into the, the hospital room dressed in the surgeon's kit with a mask on and and with it speaking with a Russian accent that he was going to give him a an anal exam <laughs> and how Christopher Reeve said that that was, you know, the first time that he felt that he was going to get through it. Um, I just, I don't know. It's, a, it's, it's very, very sad that he's gone. What about you? Well, film, film wise, um, um, there are lots of obvious films that I could choose, but actually I remember watching, I think it's called nine months. The one with Hugh Grant in, <laughs> Well, he ha- doesn't he have a baby in it? I think Hugh Grant has a baby, and um, <laughs> sorry about that. And um, Hugh Grant has uh, not Hugh Grant; his wife or his partner has a baby. I don't remember the plot, which probably says a lot about the quality of the overall film. But yeah. Ro- Robin Williams, uh, ironically, does uh, a cameo as uh, as a, a doctor, uh, if I remember rightly, a kind of a doctor who's incredibly nervous and kind of zany and out of control and it just you know the entire film is worth watching just for the Robin Williams's part in it the other bit that I would like to um, um, mention is I've I spent about an hour the other night just reading about um, you know some of the obituaries and people's comments and and that kind of thing uh, and some YouTube footage some of his he did a, there's a Parkinson interview he did with um, 
Stephen Fry, which was which was great. Um, and I found this blog post by uh, Chase Reeves, who um, is part of the team behind Fizzle, fizzle.co, which is a, a really good site, really good blog for kind of people who run an online business and and uh, and that kind of thing. And he, he this blog post was uh, he called it Crave, the blog post, and um, and. Uh, and basically Chase Reeves in, in this blog post says that he was kind of doing what I was doing, just going through YouTube videos and all that kind of thing. And he found a specific um, stand-up routine of, of Robin Williams when he was, oh, I think, relatively young. I think he was already famous by now, but but still pretty young. And um, uh, and uh, I watched some of the, the show and I was reading the blog post, which kind of details certain moments in the show which really struck um, Chase. And um, uh, the reason he called the blog post Crave was because you see at the end, um, he al- you can see Robin Williams almost is finding it difficult to leave the stage. I mean, it's the greatest standing ovation. It's a re- it seems to be a fairly small venue. The crowd have gone absolutely wild. It's, he's clearly just been it's, it's clearly been just the most incredible show, um, and you can see him just almost not leave wanting to leave the stage. And there's the bit right at the end where he goes to walk off the stage and he kind of stops like, oh, I don't want to leave the stage. And then he kind of picks up some clothes, kind of his props that were at the side of the stage, um, uh, on stage, but kind of towards the side. And he kind of just picks the props up and and kind of almost folds them or just sort of puts them in order and then kind of realises, thinks, what am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing? I need to leave. And he kind of just puts them back down and, and and then leaves the stage. But it's this idea that... Um, that he just, you know, that being in that environment was just the thing he craved and the thing he was yeah. best at. And I, I would like at some point to watch that entire show because it was just, um, you know, you could just see this guy just absolutely, absolutely had the entire crowd in the palm of his hand. Mm, amazing. Well, I'm definitely going to watch that too. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Ian. It's been a very, very productive week. We've talked about loads of things. We have, and um, and we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, where can people find you on the internet, Donna? Just remind us. Find me on Twitter at the Flying Poet. Um, if you've got any listeners' questions or comments or anything like that, be nice to hear from you. Indeed, and I am Ian Broom on Twitter at i a i n b r w o m e, and you can find my blog and get various publishing and writing tidbits at ianbroom.com/slash/blog. Super duper. See you next week then.